0: Hi, and welcome to Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. A few years ago, while I was researching the Morris worm incident for a book I was writing about the history of information security, I came across an interesting analysis of the worm written by a then-young university professor named Eugene Spafford, or Spaff, as it was more commonly known. The Morris worm, for the benefit of some of our younger listeners, God, it makes me feel old saying these words, was an infamous malware that crippled a large part of the early internet network in 1988 and caused quite a bit of panic in the general public. We did two full episodes of Malicious Life about the Morris worm, so head over to malicious.life if you wish to hear the full story. Anyway, last year, while I was attending Cyber Reason's Deep 2017 Information Security Conference in Boston, I had the pleasure of talking to Spafford about his work. Spafford, it turns out, was fortunate to be standing in many of the critical crossroads in the development and maturing of the field of information security. Snippets of this interview were already aired in the episode about the Morris worm, but a lot of interesting stuff was left out. With the summer vacation still going strong, we decided it'd be a good opportunity to air the full interview. So what you'll be hearing is Spafford talking about information security in the 1970s and 80s, and why InfoSec wasn't considered a proper academic field of research back then. We also go into the Morris Worm incident in more details and how it landed Spefford a contract to write the first English-language book about information security. Finally, we talk about Spefford's latest research into a very interesting topic, deceptive computing, and how can fake software patches help against hackers using reverse engineering techniques. Enjoy the episode, and I'll see you on the other side of the interview.
1: Uh, My name is Eugene Spafford. I'm a professor of computer sciences at Purdue University.
0: And tell us a bit about your background in computer security. When did you become involved in that field?
1: Well, really, my first exposure to computer security was like a lot of other people, where I would be playing with a system to try to find ways around it. And I was involved then as a systems administrator, where I had to find ways to protect it. Both of those occurred when I was an undergraduate, and that what time period are we talking about? This would have been in the late 1970s. So, by my reckoning, I have been involved in the field for almost 40 years now.
0: And when you started in the say the late 70s, were viruses and uh, you know the early concept of virus was it always already familiar to you, or was it unknown back then?
1: Um, No, there was really uh, no such thing. As a computer virus, Uh, certainly that term didn't come into use for another 10 years. Um, I had actually read Shockwave Rider uh, by John Brunner, uh, possibly uh, shortly after it came out, I I think. I don't recall the exact year. So I was familiar with that concept. And some of the things that I'd worked with in the computer system involved self-replicating code. And so I knew about that but nothing on the order of uh, real computer viruses. Were you
0: aware of the work done by Fred Cohen back in the early 80s about the first antivirus technologies?
1: I was aware of viruses um, from some of the early postings that were being made on some of the news groups. In 84, 85, Um, the... L-cloner virus was one that actually I saw an early report of. uh the Rich Scarenta, virus. Yeah. yeah, that Rich Scarenta, uh had, had written. And um, the early uh, brain virus, early report of that, uh, was an early follower of the virus L-list when that got started, Ken Van Wick. And was interested in the material there. Uh, when Fred's work came out and it was first published in uh, the Journal Computers and Security... Uh, I read that and thought it was really interesting because up until that point, almost everything that I had done in security as as more applied work, I had been told was not of academic interest. I I didn't do my PhD in security. At that time, security was really dominated by cryptography and formal proofs of correctness. Uh, Those were really the two things that were being done by and large, applying security and particularly the whole idea of smaller systems needing security hadn't uh, really been looked at much out in the general world, commercial world, or otherwise.
0: Why S- is that? Why wasn't security considered, uh, you know, a field that should get uh, the respect that we we have for it today?
1: Well, there were a number of reasons. Part of it was that um, in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Um, the, the computing landscape was largely dominated by mainframe computing and it was only large organizations that could afford those so they had their own internal mechanisms their own auditors their own sets of concerns and really up until um, late 70s one of the concerns was correctness so you had uh, EDP auditors who would actually manually do many of the same calculations the computer did to make sure the computer was doing them correctly. They they didn't trust it entirely.
0: <laughs> very
1: you know, yes. like a boring job. <laughs> uh, there also was very little in the way of networks that people saw in the same way. Uh, the government agencies that use computers were primarily concerned with leakage across different classification levels on a system, not on a network. They had access control because they vetted everyone who came in the buildings. So it was a very different environment Uh, During the 70s, there had been work done on uh, security architectures, security testing, but formal proofs had shown up that testing could never find all security vulnerabilities. And so the government at the time uh, had the attitude of we can allow zero opportunity for misbehavior of our systems, Uh, effectively abandoned all funding in that area, all attention, and focused everything on formal methods. That uh, didn't result in anything immediately for security. and so the, the environment was one where there were some big gaps as we began to see more portable desk side systems and then um, the personal computers arrive on the scene.
0: And uh, let's say that in the during the 1980s viruses for pop, for personal computers such as the one you mentioned already, the brain virus Del cloner, these got more and more sophisticated, more widespread. But up to the Morris worm incident in 1988, was there a kind of, uh, was there an antivirus uh, industry in a sense where people thinking in the, more in the commercial side, not as we said in the academic side, was there any uh, feeling that there should be products in, in, in security?
1: Um, not of, not for antivirus. Uh, the the first two viruses that were really out in the wild that people got any concern with were in eighty five, and uh, those were for MS DOS, uh, and they largely showed up through file sharing kinds of sites. Uh, there were two then. There were five in eighty six, five in eighty seven, n- new ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, eighty eight saw twelve, and then there were about twenty five and eighty nine. So still small numbers. Very right? small numbers. Yeah. Uh, antivirus then was mostly. From uh, hobbyists, uh, people in the field who came up with things, uh, Ross Greenberg's flu shot was one of the earliest ones that uh, uh, was designed to, to stop several kinds of viruses. And people seldom hear about that anymore because it didn't really turn into something uh, in the industry. But but there were several small homebrew solutions like that. It wasn't until really um, we began to see more with networking, more with downloading, and PCs really become something in the business environment that uh, commercial antivirus came along.
0: Let's talk about uh, the networking environment into which the Morris worm appeared. Uh, back then, uh, there was the internet or what was later to become the internet as we know it today, but it was much, much more restricted to, to government organizations and, uh, and academia than it is today, mm-hmm. right?
1: Effectively, uh, also some large companies, no commercial use was allowed. There were really two sets of networks that were out. There was a, a defense-related set of networks that were used in government and for government purposes. And then there was a, a research-oriented aspect of networking that was in use at, as you said, universities, many companies, uh, such like Digital Equipment Corporation, IBM, and so on. Uh, there, were, there were actually several networks using different protocols the um, the ones that I was on in the late eighties were uh, the early version of the N- of the NSFNet, which then became the Internet. But there were others. There was uh, NASA had something called the Span Network that ran on IBM type uh, or excuse me, Digital type computers. IBM had the BitNet, and each of those different protocols they weren't really connected together uh, had different user sets to them. So, when we are
0: talking about the Morris Worm, which network are we talking about? That was the the academia oriented, the commercial academia oriented network.
1: Yes, it was the one that was effectively the Internet Protocol network.
0: Uh, how many computers were probably? It's it's always impossible to really assess, but in a sense, how many computers are we talking about? Hundreds, thousands, millions?
1: Uh, it was in the tens of thousands. It was probably under a hundred thousand. One estimate that was widely quoted at the time said 60,000 machines were connected together. Long-haul networks, some were temporary dial-up modem, IP over, over modem, some dedicated. And then in the institutions, they generally had uh, Ethernet set up among individual systems, usually a, a 3 megabit per second ether- Ethernet, if that's going back a ways. <laughs>
0: Okay, so let's talk about Robert Morris himself. Uh, tell, us, tell me about his incident. What was he trying to do, and how did the worm uh,
1: begin? Well, uh, I've never had a conversation with him directly to, to hear this. Uh, so I've uh, the reports I've gotten secondhand from reports and others who've talked to him, some of his testimony is that he was alternately either trying to show what could be done with computers, or a vulnerability, um, or other motives that are, are less certain. It's known that the code had characteristics in it to try to hide itself, to try to keep itself established, even if it was uh, eradicated from some machines. So it was intended to be stealthy and uh, maintain persistence, so if he was trying to demonstrate something, it's not clear what he was trying to demonstrate with that in, in terms of motive. But um, he, he wrote this program over a period of time. He had accumulated uh, several vulnerabilities that were in the software at the time that he built in, programmed into the code. And then one, one day he uh, released it to the network at large.
0: Do we know what, what, what was he trying to uh, achieve with his worm?
1: uh again uh, i don't know um the, uh, what people said is possibly to see how far it would spread or how many machines it would get to the problems with the code uh that made it particularly observable and problematic um he had bugs in the code about how it recognized whether or not a machine was infected and whether or not it would reinfect a reinstantiate itself and infection may not be the best word but uh, recreate itself on some machines and so the load skyrocketed on some systems caused some to crash uh, others to become unresponsive generated a lot of network traffic that saturated the networks of the time and so it became very observable uh, within short order
0: when was the first time you've uh, heard about the worm and maybe saw its effect personally
1: Well, this was released on uh, the evening of November 2nd, and uh, it it turned out that uh, November 2nd was my uh, wedding anniversary uh, at the time, and um, uh, so I wasn't online that evening, and gone out to dinner, had a nice evening, and the next morning I got up early and uh, had some coffee and was trying to log in to read my email, and one of the machines that I normally used was unresponsive. It was still there. It was still up, but the load had soared into the hundreds, way beyond what was normal. And so I uh, realized something was off. I asked the staff, I called them on the phone and asked them to reboot the machine, which they did. And very shortly thereafter, it began to slow down and slow down. And I managed to do a, a process snapshot and saw a lot of processes running that Shouldn't have been there. That they did. They were unfamiliar. So I went into the office, and I think I then spent about the next uh, eighteen hours straight uh, there in the office uh, doing decompilation, communication, writing up results.
0: And um,
1: uh, what was the kind of communication between,
0: uh, you know, uh, researchers, users on the internet, trying to figure out what was going wrong? Was there any kind of communication between the people?
1: There was some communication. There was some email attempted back and forth. But the program preferentially got to the big servers because those were the best connected. And those were the ones that slowed down the most. So they weren't able to connect to email. Or if the administrators of those machines recognized what was going on, they took them offline. So some email was badly delayed, didn't work very well. The community at the time, some of us knew each other outside of online email or Usenet news groups, which was another mechanism of communication, but we didn't really have phone numbers or fax numbers or other ways of communicating. So that was actually one of the lessons learned that came out of the incident and led to, um, in part, the creation of the CERT-CC at uh, the Software Engineering Institute was that we needed other means of communication, we needed other uh, trusted sources than just the network-to-network.
0: Um, if, you, if I remember correctly, there was uh, a convention going on in Berkeley right at the same time, I think, that was uh, involved in trying to kind of mediate the uh, the effect of the worm or maybe trying to fight it. Uh, were you aware of that com- that activity back there?
1: Well, what was going on at the time is there was a, um, uh, a workshop that was being held with system admins from Berkeley, from MIT, and a few other places um, on Berkeley Unix. They were actually having a meeting about the, I believe it was the next release of Berkeley Unix at that point. So when they noticed the problem, they were all there together, and a group of them were able to then sort of sequester themselves and and start working on this. Um, And during the day, during the afternoon, uh, and the next day, Uh, because I knew many of those people, although I wasn't at the meeting, we had communications back and forth about what we had found and uh, methods that could be used to uh, slow down or stop the software.
0: What was the reaction from uh, official uh, government uh, contacts or the media? Were they aware of anything going on in the network?
1: Well, the news got out, certainly, and it became very newsworthy. And so one of the things I had to cope with at a certain point was, calls from uh, news media. And the university encouraged me to take the calls and fill them in on information. So that's one of the things I did. Most of the calls were pretty uninformed. So I ended up putting together a fact sheet that I could fax to them with background. Uh, One of the calls, for instance, was asking about whether this, this virus would jump to the user population, which was a fascinating question. Ah, you mean it kind of turning into a bio- biological virus? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they they really didn't have a clue as to how things worked. Um, really? <laughs> on, <laughs> on the government side, um, there was a lot of concern because they didn't know what this was or who it was from. And one of the things that I uh, raised at one point with some of them, they had thought about, which was there were thousands of copies of this, but they didn't know that all those thousands of copies were the same. And it's hard to tell until you take them apart or compare them somehow. So it might have been used as uh, camouflage for a more targeted attack. They didn't know whether this was exploratory, whether it was something real. At that time, the military side uh, of the, inter- the early Internet was still connected. Uh, I found out later that one of my... Uh, one of my friends was the duty officer at the Pentagon at the pl- at the uh, room where the bridge was between the internet and the mill net. And he had been given orders that if anything happened, he was supposed to turn a key, open a box, and hit a red switch, which would actually cause an explosion in the chassis and <laughs> physically separate the networks. And so <laughs> he was Hollywood there late at night. Oh, oh, yeah. Very, very, well, military thinking at the time. This was <laughs> positive disconnection. So he was working late at night, and the call came in to blow the net. Well, he's in a small room, and he knew if the explosives went off, not only would that damage his hearing, but it would be weeks before they got everything replaced. So he just went over and pulled the plug from the wall. Uh, was never Smart disciplined guy. from that yes well he was a he was a computer scientist so he understood how it worked um but
0: but it did it really interrupt military uh, no. operations anyway no it no. was
1: purely on the academic commercial side of the internet yes pretty much the, taking that offline just cut down it cut off some of the communication for email but it wasn't widely used at the time and within the military system, they could still use the connectivity. So it was not an issue.
0: And then you took apart the, the, more, the worm itself. You analyzed the code. What did you find there? What did you think about the code once you analyzed it?
1: Um, so the first effort on analysis was to try to find ways to stop it. And so there were several of us at Purdue who came up with various ways of stopping Uh, the worm by looking at files it created and signals it sent. Then I started taking it apart further to see how it worked, how it spread, what the algorithms were. Uh, I wrote a long report on this that turned out to uh, probably have been the most read technical report ever out of Purdue uh, and still available if anybody wants to find it. But I read it. It's fascinating analysis. It it was a it was an interesting experience for me to uh, to go through and look at the code. There were some things I found. I found coding errors as I went through. Um, I found issues such as the binaries that were included were intended for um, Berkeley Unix and uh, um, only for what was then Sun three architectures. We had a Sun four in the lab that hadn't been announced yet. And whoever had written this hadn't generated binaries for that uh, or for the digital version of Unix, as I recall. Uh, some of the algorithms terminated incorrectly. They had off by one error, so it was sloppy programming. Uh, a search on a table of network IDs that had already been done was a linear search for a large table. And this showed me as well that someone who... Hadn't really worked with large data sets or didn't understand. It turns out later I found out that uh, Mr. Morris, now Dr. Morris, uh, had done his undergraduate at Harvard where they taught the introductory courses in Lisp, which is a list processing language. And so the idea of using a binary search or a hash kind of search uh, was not something that was was immediately came to to mind. yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, if I recall correctly from reading the, that analysis, your article, it kind of gave me a sense of uh, of you, or I mean, of maybe other people, kind of taking the that the worm in a more personal level, as if you were a bit angry of something that how could something so silly and stupid and and, and obviously created but not not by a seasoned professional take down. So many computers. Was there, was, is that emotion really there or was it just my imagination?
1: Oh, I think there was some uh, people were outraged. Um, I think I was to some extent, in part because the network community using systems up until that point was a relatively closed, like minded community. It wasn't open to the public at large. There was no commercial data on it. It wasn't classified. There wasn't trade secret. There wasn't any, there was nothing like an Amazon or an eBay or anything like that. It was all research oriented and mailing lists and exchanging code. And those of us who were maintaining systems freely exchanged information about how to protect systems and what to look for. So, this code that had been inserted that took down systems, took advantage of flaws. Was almost taken personally because it was a small community that somebody had violated the trust, somebody had violated our systems. Uh, it, it's interesting to look back because fairly quickly thereafter, uh, that attitude wore away, it changed. Malicious life
0: is brought to you in collaboration with Cyberism. Cyberism allows you to gain the upper hand by taking an entirely new approach to cybersecurity, stopping fileless malware, lateral movement, and even zero days. Connect the dots and gain unmatched visibility with Cyberism. Learn more at Cyberism.com. What changed really after the Morris Worm in that respect, in the way people started thinking about security, about the connected environment?
1: Did it change something Oh, it, it did change. Uh, we saw we saw more instances of network threats of various kinds, various worms that were uh, released. We saw a big uptick in virus writing as more people took that on. The, did something
0: change in the mindset of the, the professionals? Who are now maintaining systems? Did, did they s- start thinking about security differently than before the North War?
1: Well, I, I see. I, I think I saw two things that that came about that were different. One is that those of us who are dealing with security uh, started forming closed, vetted lists to exchange information, and that turned out to be difficult because we didn't really have that much contact with all of the people out on the network, and knowing who to trust and who not to was a real problem. So that was one of the things that changed. Um, A a second thing that changed was awareness. Uh, Very shortly thereafter, I was contacted by a major uh, commercial organization, Adapso, and they asked me to write a book on viruses for their members to explain good hygiene for systems, how viruses worked, and, and the like. Uh, That ended up being the first English-language book on computer viruses and was uh, an interesting experience for me to put together.
0: Uh, It was intended not for professionals in security, I understand, but for wider population working with computers, right? Yes,
1: IT professionals and somewhat computer-literate executives. Uh, there, There was tutorial information at different levels in the book along with pointers to resources. And at the time that that was written and came out, which was, um, I think it was in late 89, early 90, uh, there there were 50 or 60 viruses that were out there for not just MS-DOS, but for Atari, Apple, Amiga systems. So that was a change that people were beginning to get more aware of that, Uh, and I also found that some of the people in government were now beginning to get interested in this. And I I was actually offered research funding for some of the things that three or four years before I had been told had no academic interest, had no government interest, and what I'd been doing as a hobby. Now there was money. Now there was money, yes. And I was able to uh, kick off a couple of my first projects uh, with my students. And um, two were very well known. Um, and the people involved have gone on into the industry. One was the COPS scanner with Dan Farmer, and the other was Tripwire with Gene Kim. And I also had a third project at intrusion detection um, with uh, Sandeep Kumar, who who got his Ph.D. with me, and... uh, um, it started some of the work that was going on in intrusion detection. So it, it, was a, it was a big change for not only the community but for me as well because it allowed me to take some of the things that I've been thinking about and working on and turn them into research projects where I could actually publish papers, uh, get students to build things, and, and uh, build up a program.
0: It's interesting to think about this specific incident. You said already that there were viruses prior to that. Uh, it was not the first worm, not the, f- the first virus, yet here we are sitting talking about the Morris worm because it somehow got, got the same way, the, It got publicized in a sort of way. Some. What's different uh, about the Morris worm that it got so much attention, that specific incident?
1: The I think the previous worms that were out were um, either all within a very small research network or – I'm trying to remember. I think the Christmas tree uh, worm propagated before. That was on BitNet. That was IBM Mail. And so this one was really the first one that covered nationally and hit institutions – that were recognizable to many members of the public, not so,
0: obscure institutions but uh, the local large university, universities yeah. yeah,
1: or the local company, and as a result, that made it newsworthy. It was also something that people had never heard of before it was sort of science fiction like and so that drew a lot of attention. It was a mystery. no one knew who had done this or why that added to the overall aspect of this um and then there were lots of follow-on. There was the, there was the first criminal prosecution that made some interest. Um, Dr. Morris's father uh, was chief scientist at the National Security Agency. That opened up all kinds of speculation about um, various interesting conspiracy theories or, or other kinds of things.
0: What the conspiracy theories, for example?
1: Oh, well conspiracy theories are always going <laughs> and, and people will find connections even if there aren't any there the one that I heard that that uh, was sort of varied and, and frequently spoken is that this was actually uh, something that had been developed internally to the agency and that the younger uh, Morris had gotten a copy of it and set it loose out on the wide world uh, and they were trying to set him up as the fall guy <laughs> Um, That's an interesting idea. It, it, yeah.
0: I can see the, the attraction to these kinds of,
1: oh, yes. of theories. Yeah. Yes, it, it's just, just enough. Serious. So if you don't trust um, the accounts you see or you have the wrong idea about what some of these agencies do, then uh, you can um, easily fall into believing that kind of story. So there were a number of things there that all kind of came together. It was also a time when personal computers were really becoming more widespread. Uh, we had the, the the PC type of computers. We had uh, the Mac had just been introduced. We had Ataris, Amigas, um, Commodore Pets, a whole lot of things that were not generally accessible because of their price, but a lot of people were buying them. And a lot of people in corporate environments were beginning to see document processing systems, Workstations, so Sun Microsystems, HP workstations, Xerox Star systems. Uh, So there were a lot of these kinds of things that people now had. Some more people had some access to those computers, and were now suddenly worried about what might be happening. So it was a it was a time of change, and it came just at the right time. time. Yeah. Uh, and then
0: uh, Robert Morris turned himself in and uh, was prosecuted and punished. What did you think about uh, the, his punishment? Uh, Do you
1: see that as a fitting punishment? At the time, I was not a hundred percent sure that he uh, should have been charged with the felony version. Although what he had done was was clearly a very bad. Uh, lapse of judgment, and clearly did harm. Although the numbers I think the government came up with were were inflated. Um, his punishment included no jail time. I thought that was appropriate. As time has gone on, and uh, we've seen this explosion in extremely bad behavior by others. Um, wiper kind of viruses, uh, ransomware. Really nasty viruses. uh, Very, very bad kinds of things that people are doing. And reflect upon the fact that uh, Dr. Morris has been um, really an upstanding member of society. He went on to complete his his, uh, doctoral degree. He started a company or two. Uh, he joined the faculty uh, at a university. He's advised students. He's written papers, but not in security. He's never used his notoriety uh, for any kind of, of fame or, or money that, that I know of or that anybody I've spoken to has, uh, has ever heard. In fact, he, he just won't talk about it.
0: Yes, he would never return any of my emails, uh, would never want to interview about this.
1: So I think what he has done there, he's, he really was contrite. Um, it really did regret what happened and has moved on and gone on to do other things um, so in, in retrospect um, the, the punishment was indeed probably too harsh uh, but at the time I think many people didn't realize just how big a problem it was going to be and in part they wanted to send a message they wanted to set an example so that others wouldn't do the same kind of thing
0: and what uh, have you done since that uh, incident 20 years ago? I mean, you've, you're you still active in, in information security.
1: Yes. What are you well, working actually, on today? That's almost 30 years ago, actually. Th-
0: yeah, actually 30, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I've done a lot of things in in the meantime. So I did, uh, as I said, some very early work in intrusion detection. Um, was the, the one who did the first two-stage firewall. I invented that. Uh, did some uh, actually formal methods of firewall work. Um started started the field of software forensics um, a number of of other kinds of things that went along in there and um, have continued to do research and built out what we did at the institute looking at advocating for a multidisciplinary approach to security that it's not just the computer it is the people it's the economy it's um, issues of psychology and politics and law and a lot of other things.
0: I so think that's a mindset that people are really coming to understand nowadays. Yes. the importance of this mindset.
1: Yeah, so we started that twenty years ago, and it's taken a while for people to really understand that 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 just giving someone a strong technical background is not going to be enough for them to secure an enterprise uh, and deal with some of the problems involved. Uh, so we've continue to try to move in that direction, we now, we we offer about five degrees in information security through the university, as well as interdisciplinary work that people can design. So I've been doing that. The last couple of students that I've had, uh, uh, one of my PhD students is actually here at this meeting with me, a former PhD student, and what we worked on for her degree was uh, looking at how to assess security for Organizations that deal with people at risk that don't have resources. So imagine shelters for uh, human trafficking victims and victims of, of uh, relationship abuse. Uh, their clients are at risk if they are discovered. That's a real problem. There's a there is a physical threat to mm-hmm. some of those people, and yet. Few of those organizations have IT professionals. They're required to keep records because of government programs and assistance and legal reasons, uh, but they don't have the kind of protections they need. So we were looking at that problem set as to what could be done to assess them and provide them assistance. Uh, I'm I'm currently looking if there's a way I can get involved in in applying some of what we do to uh, uh, helping to cut down on human trafficking issues. The second area that I've been working on is in uh, something that I was actually doing back in 1990, 1991, and have returned to, which is how to use deception as a security measure. So that, um, uh, in 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 summary, I guess part of what we did when we built systems to get them to work is we provided lots of information when things didn't work. So wrong connections, protocol connections, or or bad logins, you would get information back that would actually be advantageous to an attacker.
0: Even if you didn't manage to penetrate,
1: uh, yes. a system. A yes, system. Um, exactly. So, so if it would come back and say wrong protocol, or uh, it would give an error code that, for instance, would give information about how an attacker might reformulate uh, their attacks. And as a re- uh, another reason is that uh, we have many people who work in in computing who have heard of Kirchhoff's law but misapplied it. Uh, Kirchhoff's law was about encryption systems, which said that the security of an encryption system um, should depend only on the secrecy of the key, that otherwise the the fooling uh, algorithm should be known to any attacker. People have generalized that to computer systems and say that, well, we shouldn't depend on any kind of secrecy or lying or anything else for security. It should only be in the mechanism. Well, that isn't completely right because things that we don't tell others actually do add to the security. We shouldn't depend on them as our primary means, but they do add to security. So I've had uh, three PhD students who've done work on uh, deception and using this as a means of misdirecting attackers, slowing attackers or getting them to reveal information about their motives, all the while um, enhancing the protection of local system. So let's talk about deception. When
0: an attacker already penetrated a system, what kind of problems, I mean, I'll rephrase the question. Usually when we're talking about uh, and penetration attack, somebody penetrating a system, we are looking at the problem from the perspective of the, the organization being attacked. Now I want to switch that way of looking at the problem, looking at it from the side of the attacker. You're, you already entered a system. You're already inside. What is your challenge right now? What are the problems that you encounter?
1: A lot of that depends upon the motive and experience of the attacker. So if you are a target that had been chosen specifically by the attacker... Then it's entirely possible uh, that they have a specific goal in mind and they want to ensure that, first of all, they can continue to access the system, not be discovered, and carry out their objective, whatever that is. Other kinds of attacks are simply random. They don't even necessarily know what system they're in. And they want to find where they are. They may or may not learn the environment. Learn the environment. What other systems are there? Can we hop further? And they may or may not uh, be interested in concealing themselves or have the expertise to conceal themselves. This was more a problem decades ago, where people would break into supercomputer centers and uh, be typing DOS commands because they had no idea where they were or what kind of system they were on. Now we have much more sophisticated kinds of attacks. If the goal of the attacker is to stay stealthy, then one of the things you want to have in place in your security mechanism is not making them aware that they've actually been discovered. So you may not want to immediately kick them off or you may not immediately want to cut a network connection. Or if you do, you may want to look like it's part of the natural behavior uh, of the system going down for maintenance or some other kind of thing. If they are... Trying to do um, a survey, find out what uh, software is running or where they are, you may want to give them a false picture of the system so that they get the wrong information, the wrong things to try, um, and you can get some clue of what they're looking for. Or you can keep them connected longer to do tracebacks. If they are looking for something specific, you may be able to give them a false version of what they're looking for so that uh, what they take confounds them. It, it doesn't do what they wanted to do. Uh, so there are a number of different kinds of deception that you can employ, uh, depending on the motive and, and nature of the attacker.
0: Uh, honeypots are kind of a well-known technique for uh, deceptions in, in, as, an, as a type of defense. Let's talk about honeypots. So What, are the basic, what is the basic idea behind a honeypot?
1: Uh, Well, this is interesting. I actually um, helped um, a unit of the Air Force build one of the first nets back in 1992 um, before they became more generally known. And the goal that we had at that time, and I think it's still true for a lot of others, was to engage an attacker in wasting resources and possibly capture some of their tools to find out what it is they were using to get in to move from system to system to observe their behavior so that you could do something in defense or possibly to leverage that information to defend other systems or or attack back, as in the case of the Air Force, uh, what they were interested in doing. Attack back the attacker? Yes.
0: How can you use uh, Honeypot to attack somebody back, bring the attack to his side of the court?
1: Well, uh, one of the things you can do is you can... Uh, leave executables or files that may have something embedded in them that involves signaling or booby traps. If you have an incautious attacker who goes, Oh, good, I, this is what I was looking for, I'll run this to see what happens. Uh, now he's getting a taste of his own medicine. Yes, yes. I mean, because they're still connected back, and so whatever it is that's done. Uh, there are some interesting legal questions that have since come up about that kind of uh, work, and I don't know that it's it's uh, being used. But at the time, it was a novel idea that was discussed.
0: What are the uh, legal problems with this kind of approach?
1: Well, uh, if the attacker is using a third party system to come into yours and you attack back, you may be damaging an innocent party, uh, possibly one that legally you could be in trouble for causing damage to that party. Uh, that's one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. And that's true whether it's from a, a civil law enforcement standpoint as individuals or in the case of uh, a military service engaging in that kind of activity. So there are different laws and different kind of sensibilities. And I'm not expert in that, what how that's interpreted and fallen out now, but I'm told that both of those are, are uh, big concerns for those who are interested in following the law. Uh, the, the biggest uh, use, though, was to create – Uh, A whole lot of systems that looked real, that would engage an attacker, that they would expend tools, they would have to use vulnerabilities, they would have to be visible and create uh, a pattern of activity that could be used to track them without actually attacking or damaging real systems. Like setting off alarms, if I understand correctly, Mm
0: -hmm. by trying to attack... Uh, virtual uh, targets, if I understand. Yeah,
1: right. not only not only setting off alarms, but 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 actually having them go through the motions to allow you to track it in, a, in an environment where, if they damaged files or if they did things, it didn't really hurt. You could still look at what they were doing and use that information uh, to protect other systems or or to understand what they were after.
0: Any other deception techniques, uh, except uh, maybe using honeypots, that uh, you can tell us about.
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, my most recent graduate uh, student, who's who's uh, now gone to work for a company in the D.C. area, um, looked at what's involved in putting out fake software patches. So right now, when a company puts out a security-related patch, it's usually a matter of a day or two before that patch is reverse-engineered and turned into an attack method, and it, particularly if it's uh, potentially for a high-value system, so there's a danger to patches being put out. And what a lot of people don't realize is that for many systems that are out there, that are certified or tested or safety critical, they can't apply the patches quickly. There's there's no way. So medical um, devices, for instance, that have a patch released, it may be months before that can really be applied, because just putting a patch in place may break something that the medical device depends on you don't want to change something radically no not at all because it could affect somebody's life or chemical plant uh, control or power systems monitoring or air traffic control or a lot of other kinds of places they can't immediately apply the patches so this creates a vulnerability what we wanted to uh, explore was well what happens if we issue patches for things that aren't broken if we obfuscate the patches in ways that make them harder to reverse engineer, or we flood a system with patches so that there are so many that it further delays an attacker. The goal was to significantly slow someone down, not necessarily to prevent them from reverse engineering because that requires a lot more effort. We came up with, with two strategies that sort of met the requirements. Um, The experiments that we came up with indicated it was generally not going to work well because it not only was a lot of effort on the part of the issuer of the patch, the vendor, uh, but um, it also would make it more difficult to debug systems that had multiple benign things changed on a frequent basis. So the two things that we came up with, one was you increase the frequency and size of patches and randomly put the fixes in those patches, So imagine issuing a large multi-megabyte patch set every day where you insert into that some of the real patches, but you don't let the attackers know which set it is. Um, That has some benefit, but again, it turns out to be a tremendous amount of overhead for both the end user and uh, the vendor. Um, But the the mechanism that actually looks the most recent right now is – or most reasonable is – when you have to release a set of patches, recompile the whole system with some random values so that the whole system is varied. Not only the patch, but the whole system. The whole system, and reissue the system to reinstall. Because that way, the differential patch can't be easily analyzed. Uh, Patches were originally developed in an environment where bandwidth was minimal, and people had to download patches over a period of time. Currently, with network speeds the way they are and storage the way it is, uh, there's no reason to, to do incremental patches anymore, really, when you can send out the whole thing. And if you're able to vary where things are placed in memory, load order for each I- incremental patch, then that's going to provide a better mechanism to confuse an attacker than issuing any variation of the patches. So that was one of the research projects that, that we came up with recently. The next thing that I'm going to look at, if I can, if I can get some support for it, uh, is really more psychological. That deception works better if you understand the biases of the person you're trying to deceive. And we all carry biases of one kind or another. Uh, and some are social biases and some are just personality-based. But a social bias, for example, people brought up in some countries will be, Uh, more likely to believe figures of authority saying something than individuals farther down in the chain. So if I wanted to um, give a false reason for taking the system down, as a system administrator, if I were to send a message saying, I need to take the system down to fix something, that's going to trigger more suspicion and be less likely to believe by people who have this bias than saying... Um, it's the scheduled downtime for uh, for enterprise-wide updates or something to that effect. Because there are the ideas that it's issued by authority, it's collective identity. But there are hundreds of these biases, and it's not clear which ones can be exploited in uh, deceptive computing. That's one of the things I want to look at uh, some as a, as a next topic. I'm also now looking at uh, a project in the whole area of um, how ethics and choice are embedded in systems and how this can impact safety and security. Uh, We have many people who are programming autonomous systems, autonomous vehicles, uh, Internet of Things, and they're building their perceptions of right and wrong and what should be done in exceptional circumstances into the software. And that may not match how the user wants it done. So... What, for example, what kind of, uh,
0: of, this kind of bias?
1: Well, there's, um, there's a classic problem in ethics called the streetcar problem. And if you imagine an autonomous vehicle uh, speeding along a mountain road, you turn a corner, there's another car with, uh, stalled in the road with a family and some kids. A choice needs to be made at that point because the car can't stop in time. Do you run into the car? and the airbags and the like protect you, but maybe like you kills kill the, people the people in the car? Or do you steer the car over the cliff, saving the lives of the people in the family and, possibly, and very possibly killing whoever's in the car? This is a variation of this. Uh, there was a recent article in Wired that talked about this. But that choice is likely to be programmed in by a programmer or possibly even generated by an AI system but that won't necessarily reflect the choice made by the driver. And I think that's something that we need to examine. There are many choices. Another one is to, is to if you have a smart home with a lot of appliances, you may choose as a matter of social conscience to have your thermostat set at 78 in the summer, to have less air conditioning and less carbon load, but somebody else may not care. Uh, if there is no legal restriction, well... You should choose what to do. But if the home system sets that for you rather than giving you choice, then is th- that should be a problem. Uh, I think we have a lot of people building systems now who aren't thinking about those issues. If we take humans out of choice equations here, um, we may not like the choices that are made. And some people will use that as an excuse not to make hard choices. The, the computer made me do it. Well, that's never an excuse that we should allow. We don't really want to take people out of situations where choice is made that impacts others. Uh, This is a safety issue. It's a security issue. Uh, And it is part of what I was saying that this arena of dependable computing, of trustable computing – Involves more than simply understanding the computers. It, it involves understanding other things about psychology and law and philosophy in this that case. That makes
0: the problem very interesting. The yes, crossover between technology and psychology. Yeah. Eugene Peffer, thank you very much for this interview. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. That will be all for this episode. Hang on. Hang on. Thanks for listening. Visit malicious.life to subscribe to our podcast, read the full transcripts, and download other episodes. Drop me a line at ran at ranlevi.com. That's R A N L E V I, or on Twitter at, at @ranlevi and follow at @malicious_life for updates on future episodes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Our senior producer is Nate Nelson. Thanks again to Cyberizen for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberism.com. Bye bye.